Hello, I'm Eric Huang. You're listening to Saint Podcast, a history and culture podcast that explores the origins of morality tales of the saints, also known as hagiographies, and how they continue to impact life today. This is the final episode in Saint Podcast's debut season on martyrs, saints who died as a result of their beliefs. Season two will launch in the new year with 10 episodes about mystics. Stay tuned for more information on season two. The final episode in season one explores the legend of another virgin martyr. She's the patron saint of writers, salespeople, Perugia, Malta, Syracuse in Sicily, and Pampanga in the Philippines. She's also the patron saint of the blind and optometrists because she was famously tortured by having her eyes gouged out. The feast day for this martyr used to fall on the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. Through the centuries, solstice celebrations in her honor have merged with local pagan rituals to influence the development of Santa Claus, and also how so many of us celebrate the holiday season today. This is the story of St. Lucy, the spirit of Christmas. Lucy was born in the 280s, the daughter of a noble family from Syracuse on the island of Sicily. Our main source, the Golden Legend, doesn't give us a lot of details, but reading between the lines, it appears that Lucy is born to pagan parents and discovers Christianity herself as a youth. Lucy's mother, Euthyka, is likely of Greek origin, as her name suggests, and she suffers from an ailment the Golden Legend calls, quote, an incurable flow of blood. Lucy's father, a Roman aristocrat, dies when Lucy is just five. By the time Lucy becomes a teenager, the cult of Saint Agatha has grown amongst Christians on Sicily. Agatha is a virgin martyr from Catania, a city on the island about a day's journey from Lucy's hometown. She was martyred about 30 years before Lucy was born, and her legend mirrors that of so many other virgin martyrs. Being very beautiful, Agatha attracts the unwanted attentions of a local Roman official. When she spurns him, he turns her in as a Christian. She's then subjected to the usual battery of horrific tortures, from which she's miraculously healed by St. Peter. The torture St. Agatha is most associated with, and the one that appears as an attribute in art, is that her breasts were ripped off her body with pincers. You can easily spot St. Agatha in paintings, because she's the virgin martyr who carries her breasts on a plate. Lucy, as we'll discuss in more detail, is the virgin martyr from Sicily who carries her eyes on a plate. News of miraculous healings at St. Agatha's shrine in Catania soon reach Lucy. She beseeches her mother to journey together to St. Agatha's Cathedral in Catania, where they pray for Euthyka's recovery from the blood ailment. A mass has already commenced when Euthyka and Lucy arrive. The very moment they enter the cathedral, the priest conducting mass reads a passage from the gospel. It describes how Jesus cures a woman who suffers from the same affliction as Lucy's mother. This miracle is described in three different gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The unnamed woman's condition is labeled as, quote, an issue with blood, which biblical scholars have interpreted to mean a constant hemorrhaging. This was a serious medical concern, and it would have also affected the woman's social standing. 
menstruating women were thought of as unclean. And this woman, who Mark's Gospel says bled constantly for 12 years, would have been like a pariah, untouchable in the highly patriarchal society of the time. The implication is that Lucy's mother suffers a similar fate. Upon hearing the priest read the chapter and verses about the miraculous healing, Lucy turns to her mother. If you believe what you have just heard, you should also believe that Agatha is always in the presence of him for whose name she suffered martyrdom. And if in this faith you touch the saint's tomb, you will instantly recover your health. Lucy and Euthyka remain in the church after Mass ends and pray before St. Agatha's tomb, touching it as Lucy mentions. Soon, however, Lucy falls asleep. St. Agatha appears before her, surrounded by angels. She's luminous, and her clothing and person are adorned with precious stones. Agatha speaks to Lucy. My sister Lucy, virgin consecrated to God, why do you ask me for something that you yourself can do for your mother? Indeed, your faith has already cured her. According to Agatha, there was no need to journey to Catania into the cathedral. No need to ask for Agatha's intercession because Lucy's prayers have already been answered due to her own faith. It's sort of a ruby slippers moment when Glinda, the good witch from the Wizard of Oz, tells Dorothy that the power to return home was always with her, on her feet. But Dorothy wouldn't have believed it if she hadn't gone through the ordeal with the Wicked Witch of the East. Perhaps Lucy's faith wouldn't have been strong enough to heal her mother without the pilgrimage to Agatha's church. When Lucy awakens from the vision, she addresses her mother. Mother, you are healed, but in the name of her to whose prayers you owe your cure, I beg of you to release me from my espousals and to give to the poor whatever you have been saving for my dowry. Like other virgin martyrs we've met, Lucy had dedicated her virginity to God when she was just a girl. She didn't tell her parents, though. So when Lucy's father passed away, Euthyka arranged for her daughter to marry a noble-born boy to ensure her daughter's future security. So Lucy begs her mother to release her of this obligation, that she might keep her promise to remain a virgin. Euthyka asks Lucy why she needs permission not to marry. Why not wait until you have closed my eyes and then do whatever you wish with our wealth? Lucy could have easily done whatever she wanted as soon as her mother was dead. Euthyka's comments suggests her death is imminent, soon enough that Lucy would be able to wrangle her way out of the wedding. But Lucy is a dutiful daughter who couldn't ever go against her mother's wishes. And more importantly, Lucy's soul and her mother's soul are at stake. Lucy responds to her mother. What you give away at death you cannot take with you. Give while you live and you will be rewarded. Acts of charity while alive will be rewarded with salvation upon death, entrance into heaven. And so mother and daughter return home to begin donating their fortune to the poor. Euthyka is now a Christian, just like her daughter. There's one problem, however. Nobody remembers to tell Lucy's fiancé that the plans have changed. He first suspects something's up when he hears gossip that Lucy and her mom are giving away all their stuff. Stuff that's due to him as part of the dowry. Lucy's betrothed, who's unnamed, goes to her house and confronts her maid to find out what's going on. The maid lies and tells him that Lucy has found a beautiful house 
she wants to buy in his name as a gift, and she's selling her possessions to raise the funds needed to procure such an awesome property. The Golden Legend tells us Lucy's fiancé is happy with the explanation, and even helps with the estate sale, since this ultimately benefits him. And he's happy to do this, we're told, because of sinful faults in his character. Firstly, he's greedy, and would love to live in a bigger house. Secondly, he's, quote, stupid. I think this is a bit unfair. There are a lot of terrible men in the hagiographies we've explored in season one, and many, many more in other legends. But Lucy's fiancé isn't really one of them. Even now when he's helping Lucy and Yuthika sell their stuff, no one has told him the marriage to Lucy isn't happening. Lucy herself and his future mother-in-law go along with the lie. Surely before dismissing him, they could have first tried to persuade him to join their charitable endeavor, the way St. Cecilia from the last episode successfully persuaded her husband to protect her virginity and convert as well. This doesn't happen though, and eventually, the stupid fiancé realizes something's not quite right. The Golden Legend doesn't provide any details how he uncovers Lucy's plans, but once the cat has been let out of the bag, the fiancé tells a local Roman consul named Pascasius that his betrothed is a Christian. Diocletian is the emperor of Rome at this time, the same Diocletian who orders St. Sebastian shot with arrows, a legend we explored in episode 2. Christianity is illegal in the Roman Empire, and Lucy is arrested. The Roman consul Pascasius commands Lucy to sacrifice to the Roman gods to prove she isn't a practitioner of this illegal faith. Lucy refuses. The sacrifice that is pleasing to God is to visit the poor and help them in their need. And since I have nothing left to offer, I offer myself to the Lord. Lucy deems pagan sacrifices to be utterly meaningless. For her god, charitable sacrifices are the ones that matter. Pascasius calls Lucy a fool. Lucy retorts that while he serves human masters back in Rome, she serves God, a higher, noble power. She tells everyone present that it's the Holy Spirit inside her that gives her strength and speaks through her. Pascasius's anger rises and he responds with an insult, that Holy Spirit or not, Lucy, quote, talks like a whore. The consul then announces he's decided Lucy's fate. She's to be taken to a brothel immediately, where she'll be defiled, therefore driving away this Holy Spirit from her impure body. Lucy's reply is one that has influenced Christian dogma and speaks to the nature of sin itself, in particular, whether virginity and purity are lost, if taken forcibly. The body is not defiled unless the mind consents. If you have me ravished against my will, my chastity will be doubled and the crown will be mine. You will never be able to force my will. As for my body, here it is, ready for torture. Son of the devil, begin, carry out your cruel designs. For Lucy, and therefore the Holy Spirit and God who speak through her, Nothing done to her body without her consent will blot her purity. Thomas Aquinas, a philosopher and one of the influential doctors of the church, quotes this passage from Lucy's Passio in his 1485 work, Summa Theologica. He's in agreement with Lucy that free will is at the crux of whether defilement is a sin. Another doctor of the church, St. Augustine, 
echoed this same sentiment a thousand years earlier in his opus, City of God. For Augustine, Aquinas, and Lucy, it's quite clear that no matter what Paskaskias does to Lucy, she will not be blemished or blamed. Every conceivable torture will only make her shine brighter and be awarded the crown, which means crowned a martyr. In fact, Lucy goads Paskaskias to do all that his wicked mind wishes. Calling her bluff, Paskaskias shouts at his staff to gather a crowd at once to ravish Lucy. When his men apprehend her to drag her outside to the awaiting masses, they find they're unable to move her, not even an inch. The golden legend tells us the Holy Spirit has fixed her to the place where she stands. Lucy's arms and legs are now bound, and 1,000 men are summoned to take her away. They can't. Now, the consul sends for a thousand yoke of oxen. The animals are hitched to the ropes, binding Lucy's arms and legs. Again, she doesn't move at all. Magicians are the next to arrive, with spells and incantations. Still nothing. Pascasius finally recalls that witchery such as this can sometimes be dispelled with urine. So his men drench Lucy in urine. This doesn't produce the wanted effect, but yuck. Since it's impossible to move Lucy, the tortures begin. First, they try to burn her. According to hagiographer Aldenham, a heavenly rain shower extinguishes the flames. Next, boiling oil is poured all over her. All the while, Lucy prays and is unharmed. She finally addresses Paskasius. I have prayed for this prolongation of my martyrdom in order to free believers from the fear of suffering and to give unbelievers time to insult me. Lucy's survival is due to her own wishes, that she live while being tortured to show closeted Christians that they ought not fear death and martyrdom. One of Pascasius' advisors notices the consul's distress over this witch that just won't die. So he plunges a dagger into her throat. Far from silencing her, though, Lucy speaks a prophecy while the dagger protrudes from her now bloody neck. I make known to you that peace has been restored to the church. This very day, Maximian has died and Diocletian has been driven from the throne. And just as God has given my sister Agatha to the city of Catania as protectress, so I am given to the city of Syracusa as mediatrix. A Greek version of Lucy's hagiography, which predates the Golden Legend by several hundred years, omits these dying words, and adds the detail that she was beheaded after being stabbed. According to the Golden Legend, Lucy's prophetic statements come true. Even while she speaks the prophecy, officials from the capital burst into the room to arrest Pascasius for pillaging Sicily of riches owed to the Emperor Diocletian. Pascasius is tried, found guilty, and beheaded. Meanwhile, Lucy stays alive just long enough to receive last rites. Everyone present at her trial converts and is baptized. And all of this is done in the open now that the Christian persecutions have ended, just as Lucy had prophesied. Lucy's body is buried in a church in Syracuse, which bears her name today. Lucy's prophecies don't match up to historic dates. The date of her martyrdom 310 is five years after Diocletian stepped down as emperor for a life of retirement, not banishment. The Christian persecutions Diocletian began 
wouldn't end until two years after Lucy's death. The prophecy might be inaccurate, but the spirit of what she says is a message of hope that everything she had prayed for would come to pass. And it does, though not in the timeline quoted in the Golden Legend. There's also a glaring omission in the Golden Legend. St. Lucy is most famously known for having her eyes gouged out. Countless paintings and sculptures show her carrying her gouged out eyes on a plate. But no mention of her eyes appear in any surviving hagiographies until the 15th century, about 300 years after the Golden Legend was written. If the eye gouging incident isn't in the Golden Legend, when did this part of the story develop? And why did this new addition to an already well-known hagiography become so popular? The answer, it seems, is in Venice. St. Lucy is very easy to spot in art. She's almost always carrying a pair of eyes on a plate. This is because of an anecdote in her legend that developed sometime in the 14th or 15th century. There are two versions of the story. In one, an admirer tells Lucy how beautiful her eyes are, sometimes as one of her jailers, a pagan official, or even Pascasius himself. Other times, it's just some random guy no matter who makes the comment about her eyes, Lucy doesn't take it as a compliment and gouges them out. She then sends her eyes to the admirer with a note to the effect of, You claim to love and desire my eyes. Well, here they are. It's all of me you'll ever get. This act of self-harm relates to another passage from the Gospel, also from Matthew, chapter 5, verse 29. So if thy right eye is an occasion of sin to thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is better for thee that one of thy members should perish than that thy whole body should be thrown into hell. Lucy interprets this passage quite literally and removes the object that might lead her to the sins of lust and pride, her eyes. This is interesting because Lucy was never in real danger of losing her purity. She would never have consented to have sex with any admirer. Therefore, it wouldn't be her fault, not her sin, if the beauty of her eyes were the excuse to make some man take her against her will. It's the same argument she gives to Pascasius when he threatens to have her raped in order to make her impure. In that case, Lucy was adamant that nothing the consul could do to her against her will would have diminished her in God's esteem. The anecdote about the eyes contradicts this. In the second version of the eye-gouging incident, which is more popular today, someone else removes Lucy's eyes. It's one of the many tortures Lucy suffers under Pascasius, and not related at all to temptation or unwanted attention. In both versions, the eyes are miraculously restored overnight. Carmelite poet Baptista Mantuanus writes in the year 1500 that God himself sends the archangel Raphael to personally replace her eyes. The earliest surviving account of the eye-gouging incident comes from a 1497 work by Jacopo Filippo Foresti de Bergamo. 
In his work, he credits an unknown author for relaying the details of the eye gouging, which implies that the story was relatively new in 1497, since it needed an explanation as to its appearance. There are no surviving written accounts of the eye gouging before 1497, but the earliest surviving artworks depicting Lucy holding a plate of eyes date from 200 years earlier. How did the eye gouging story come to be? The first mention we have of Saint Lucy comes from an inscription in the fourth-century catacombs of John the Baptist, just outside the city walls of Syracuse in Sicily. Saint Jerome's Martyrology then mentions her in the fifth century. By now, Lucy's cult had left the island of Sicily and was spreading throughout the Western Roman Empire. Pope Gregory, a saint and pope from the late sixth and early seventh centuries, included Saint Lucy in his version of the daily canon of the Mass, which is the Catholic prayer spoken just before communion. Seven virgin martyrs are mentioned by name, ordered by geography: Felicity and Perpetua from Roman North Africa, Agatha and Lucy from Sicily. Agnes and Cecilia from Rome, and Anastasia from the Eastern Empire. Together, Saint Cecilia, Agatha, and Lucy also became associated with the wise virgins, a parable from the Bible, Matthew 25. Ten virgins, five wise and five foolish, set out at nightfall to meet a bridegroom for a wedding ceremony. The wise virgins leave with their lamps and extra oil. The foolish ones bring only their lamps. The bridegroom, of course, is late, hours late. The lamps carried by the foolish virgins run out of oil and go out, so the five leave to buy more. While they're away at the shops, the bridegroom finally arrives to escort the five wise virgins into the wedding venue and locks the door. The three virgin martyrs' association with the wise virgins links their faith to the burning lamps, which never go out. Saint Lucy had an even closer relationship with the wise virgins because her name comes from the Latin word lux, which means light. The golden legend states that Lucy's name is quote, "the way of the light," a model of a pure life. Pasios and other literary works about Lucy from the eighth century onwards made numerous allusions to light and seeing when retelling her legend. In the Canon of Lucy by Bishop Methodius, who was also from Syracuse. He asks the saint if she would quote, illuminate the blind, O you who have the name of light. Bishop Methodius's mention of the blind isn't a literal one; it's a figurative blindness. In this case, those blind to the Christian faith. All references to light up to this point are also figurative and symbols of faith. Lucy's association with physical seeing and medical blindness doesn't happen until around the 13th century. A result of what happened to her body after she died. According to a medieval author and monk named Sigebert, Saint Lucy's body, which was buried in Syracuse after her martyrdom, was translated by Farold II, Duke of Spoleto, to an ancient Italian city called Corfinium. In the year 972, Otho I, an East Frankian king and Holy Roman Emperor, took the body to the Church of Saint Vincent in Metz. Modern-day France. One of Lucy's arms was removed and gifted to a monastery in Luitburg, Germany. The arm had an effect on Sigebert. He wrote an entire poem dedicated to its translation as a gift to the monastery. A contradictory account by another writer claims Pope Stephen II 
a Roman aristocrat, moved Lucy from Syracuse to Constantinople 200 years earlier in the 8th century. And yet another account states a Greek general took her body home to Constantinople after the Byzantines took control of Sicily from the Muslims between 1039 and 1040. The details aren't clear and the accounts contradictory, but St. Lucy's body arrived in Constantinople sometime around the 11th century and her popularity grew from there. In 1204, Constantinople was sacked by the combined forces of a crusader army and the Venetians. Constantinople, the capital of Christian culture and what was left of the Roman Empire, was destroyed. Priceless works of art were looted or melted down, citizens killed in cold blood, raped and tortured. Among the countless treasures looted were the bones of St. Lucy. Enrico Dandolo, the doge or ruler of Venice, procured Lucy's relics as part of Venice's spoils for funding and participating in the atrocities. In 1205, Lucy's body arrived in Venice. According to academic Barbara Wish, it's here and now that the story of Lucy's eyes begins to develop. Wish makes a very convincing case in her paper that the figurative light and sight associated with Lucy up until now became literal, possibly because the doge who brought Lucy from Constantinople to Venice was blind. There's a link to Wish's paper on the St. Podcast website. It's a fascinating read. When Lucy's body arrived in Venice, it was given to the monks at the monastery on a small island of San Giorgio Maggiore. Pilgrims regularly journeyed to the island to pray before St. Lucy's relics. On the 13th of December in 1279, Lucy's feast day, a storm churned up the waters in the lagoon, and several pilgrims drowned while en route to the monastery. Right away, officials decided to move the relics inland to prevent this from happening again. On the 18th of January in 1280, exactly 75 years after her arrival to Venice from Constantinople, Lucy's body was translated to the Church of the Annunciation, which was rededicated to her in 1342. Several hundred years later in 1860, the body was moved one more time to the Church of San Geremia when Lucy's church was demolished to make way for the Venezia Santa Lucia railway station, which is where all the tourists alight to catch ferries to Venice today. You can still see St. Lucy's remains at San Jeremia, aside from one bone which has been returned to the cathedral in Syracuse, and both of her arms, one of which is at St. Peter's Cathedral in the Vatican, and the other, which is still with the monks on the island of San Giorgio Maggiore. Barbara Wish points out that in Constantinople, Dandolo had possession of both the bodies of Lucy and Agatha. He took Lucy's body but returned Agatha to her birthplace. Why didn't he keep them both, since their legends intertwine, and they're paired together in the daily canon of the Mass, and often painted together as well? Could it be that Dandolo favored Lucy because he hoped she might intercede on his behalf to restore his sight? Eyewitness accounts of the translation of Lucy's body in 1280 from the island to further inland report two miracles. Firstly, one of her arms miraculously broke off and attached itself to one of the monks. To everyone present, it was a sure sign that she wanted part of her body to remain with them. Or maybe one of the monks just couldn't bear to see her go. The other miracle is a miraculous healing of a blind boy reported by Monsignor Giorgio Polacco. A widow prayed before the relics as they paraded by, 
beseeching St. Lucy to protect her son's vision. He was blind in his left eye and going blind in the right. She promised that she'd visit the saint's body daily with offerings every morning of a pair of silver votive eyes, which are eye-shaped metal-like charms. When the widow returned home, she found her son's eyesight completely restored. It's this story, according to Wish, that linked Lucy to a literal rather than just a figurative seeing and made her the patron saint of eye ailments. Lucy's name, meaning the way of the light, also suited Venice perfectly because as a maritime city, beacons of light made the difference between life and death. Lucy, the way of the light, was like a lighthouse, safely guiding sailors and merchants to and from her adopted city, while simultaneously shining a figurative light to show the way for their souls as well. Lucy was now associated with light, as well as protection against blindness. But surviving hagiographies from this time still don't mention the eye-gouging incident. Even in pamphlets that pair a short summary of Lucy's legend with traditional eye remedies, which Barbara Wish writes, included placing a thin slice of old beef on the afflicted eye, or a mixture of sheep bile, honey, and certain seeds put, quote, sensibly in the eye. Once Lucy's association with eyesight was cemented in Venice due to the miracle of the blind boy, believers began leaving votive eyes at St. Lucy's shrine. There are votive medals for nearly every body part. They don't represent amputations, though. They're symbolic, similar to charms left at a shrine or altar as a prayer to heal that body part. And the votives were often left in plates on an altar. Venice in the 1400s was a vibrant cultural center. Local artists and writers would have looked to Lucy one of the patrons of their city, as inspiration for paintings and literature. The votive eyes on plates from her shrine appeared in these paintings. Then the stories developed around the images to retroactively explain the presence of the eyes. This is the theory espoused by Hippolyte Delahaye, a Jesuit and hagiographical scholar. He had this to say about St. Lucy. What has not been invented to explain the images of the saints? St. Lucy is sometimes represented holding two eyes on a plate in order to remember that she is invoked to be cured of vision disorders. Hence the following story. Academic Anthony K. Castle states that the eye-gouging incident in St. Lucy's legend is an example of a story that developed to explain the iconography, not iconography created to illustrate a story. This means Lucy's association with eyes and seeing was first depicted in paintings as votive eyes on a plate, as they would have been seen on an altar at a church. And since Lucy is so closely associated with St. Agatha, who carried her own dismembered breasts on a plate, it was a sort of poetic symmetry to have the figure of Lucy also carry her plate. Once these eyes-on-a-plate Lucy paintings became ubiquitous, stories from the unknown sources quoted by hagiographer Foresti arose to explain why the eyes were there at all. Some of these stories claimed the eyes were removed by her torturer. Others claimed they were removed by herself. Church officials have made many attempts to stop depictions of the eyes and to also stop the newer versions of her hagiography that contained the eye-gouging incident. Cardinals Baronio and Borromeo from the 16th and 17th centuries deemed the eye-gouging story, quote, a fable. The earliest depictions of St. Lucy, 6th century mosaics from Ravenna, 
show her as just another virgin martyr, indistinguishable from others like Cecilia. Lucy then emerged as the virgin who carried a lamp, symbolizing the light from her name and the divine light of faith. Sometimes she carried a dagger, and it sometimes appeared lodged in her neck. In the early 1300s, soon after the miraculous healing of the partially blind boy from Venice, votive eyes appeared in paintings. At first, they were decorative motifs, not really part of the narrative of the painting, just graphic elements alluding to her patronage of eyesight. Then the eyes appeared on Lucy's lamp, floating in the oil of the lamp. By the 1400s, eyes were the norm, now carried on a plate or a Bible. In Francesco del Casso's unusual mid-15th century painting, Lucy's eyes are the two flowers blooming on a plant she holds in her left hand. The painting is part of a larger altarpiece called the Griffoni Polyptych, created for the San Petronio Basilica in Bologna. Sadly, the work was cut apart centuries ago, the individual paintings scattered across museums around the world. The Lucy panel is at the National Gallery of Art in Washington, D.C. It's mesmerizing, not just due to the unusual and quite pagan-looking treatment of the eyes on a plant, but also because of Lucy's expression. She's got a sassy look and gives the eyes she holds in her hand a shady, side-eyed glare. We've explored how St. Lucy became the patron saint of eyes and the blind. She's also the patron of optometrists, photography, stained glass workers, and glaziers in general. But Lucy hasn't lost her association with light. In fact, it's her renown as a beacon of light, both literally and figuratively, that links her to ancient gods who protect the earth on the darkest night of the year. The same gods who, together with St. Lucy, inspired our modern traditions for Christmas. St. Lucy's feast day is on the 13th of December. When this date was set in the 4th century, it fell on the winter solstice, the 21st of December today. The discrepancy between the two dates is due to different calendars used then and now. In the 4th century, the Julian calendar, devised by Julius Caesar in the year 46, was used by much of Western Europe. In 1582, Pope Gregory XIII altered the Julian calendar to make it match more precisely the orbit of the Earth around the Sun. The Julian calendar was off by 11 minutes, 14 seconds every year. This seems like a short amount of time, but by the mid-1500s, astronomical events like solstices and equinoxes, the seasons, were off by 10 days. Pope Gregory's revised calendar fixed this and prevented future slippages. This is why we have leap year, an extra day added to adjust for the day we lose about every four years. It wasn't until the 1920s that every nation in the world switched to the current Gregorian calendar, named after Pope Gregory XIII. The winter solstice, which fell on the 13th of December on the Julian calendar, is equivalent to the 21st of December on our calendar.
the Gregorian calendar. The winter solstice has been a key date for humans since the Neolithic age. Monuments like Stonehenge in England are orientated to mark the day of the solstice, which was important because this was a time of famine in the Northern Hemisphere, when nothing grew. Midwinter celebrations mark the end of the harvest, beginning a time of scarcity when the livestock that couldn't be fed were slaughtered, the meat preserved to last through winter. The solstice was also a time of rebirth. As the shortest day of the year, every day after was longer and longer until spring. It's because of this rebirth that sun gods and deities of the light were sacrificed and prayed to, invoked to ensure the sun and light returned after the darkest day. This was a worldwide occurrence that every non-equatorial culture seemed to independently develop in similar ways, with the critical difference being in the southern hemisphere, the winter solstice occurs in June. In India, solstice celebrations are called Makar Sankranti. In Iran, Yalda. Modern solstice celebrations in China date to the 3rd century. It's a time of family a bit like Thanksgiving in the US and Canada. In Japan, pumpkin is eaten. For ancient Romans, a Syrian god named Sol was worshipped during the solstice. Sol is the Latin word for sun. It's the root word for solstice. The words solar and solarium also come from the Latin root word sol. The Germanic peoples celebrated a solstice holiday called Yule. Scholars have traced the origins of Yule to a European archetype called the Wild Hunt, in which a supernatural being or deity rides a magical flying animal while in pursuit of demons or spirits, particularly draugar, undead creatures that walk the earth on the darkest day of the year. Witnessing the wild hunt meant a great change was occurring soon, usually something bad. In the case of Yule, the change was one to scarcity and the famine of winter. King Arthur was the supernatural being who led the wild hunt in Brittany and France. In Scandinavia, it was Odin, the leader of the Norse gods. This is Thor's dad, the character played by Anthony Hopkins in the Marvel movies. The wild hunt was called Odin's hunt by Germanic peoples. During the supernatural event, Odin rode his flying horse Sleipnir, accompanied by two ravens, Hugin and Munin, who were extremely observant, and reported to Odin whether the humans they spied on were naughty or nice. Two giant hunting dogs, or wolves, also joined the hunt. Odin wasn't the only Norse god at large during the winter solstice. There was also Freya, a powerful goddess associated with love, fertility, sex and war, and just like St. Lucy, light. She was also at large during the winter solstice and rode through the sky in a chariot pulled by flying cats. Yule celebrations lasted three days and would have fallen on the 21st, 22nd, and 23rd of December on our calendar, the week of Christmas. According to the Helms Kringla, a compilation of sagas about Old Norse kings written in the 12th century, it was the Christian king Hakon I of Norway who merged local Yule celebrations with the Christian celebration of Christmas in the 9th century. He moved Yule a few days after the solstice and decreed that it would be celebrated concurrently Christmas from now on. Because King Hakon was very popular, many of his subjects converted to his faith. Christmas and Yule soon became inseparable, but the holiday's pagan roots still remain and survive in Christmas carols like 
Have yourself a merry little Christmas in the line, Make the Yuletide Gay. Odin of the Wild Hunt, with knowledge from his ravens about who was naughty or nice, riding a flying horse, merged with the Dutch figure Sinterklaas, a corruption of Saint Nicholas, Dutch for Saint Nicholas, the saint whose legend would give us the modern day Santa Claus. So what does this have to do with Saint Lucy? Well, because Saint Lucy's feast day fell on the winter solstice, she, like Saint Nicholas, merged with local gods when Christianity reached what is now Scandinavia. Her name, the Way of Light, made it very easy for locals to adopt her as another incarnation of indigenous light-giving goddesses like Freya. In Sweden, St. Lucy's feast day is called Lucinata, Lucy Night. It involves eating saffron buns called Lucicater, which means Lucy's cats. The buns are S-shaped swirls evocative of a cat's tail and derive from the felines that pulled Freya's chariot. In pre-Christian times, another Lucy, who was a legendary Germanic enchantress, whose name also means light, although her name was spelled L-U-S-S-I, was known to be at large on the winter solstice. This was a very dangerous night. Trolls, gnomes, and the undead walked the earth, and animals were known to talk to each other. Livestock and pets were given extra food on the solstice so they wouldn't spread gossip or speak ill of their masters, or curse them and no one was allowed to work. Those who did were punished by Lucy, as were naughty children who Lucy might take away in the night, entering the house through the chimney, just like Santa Claus. When Saint Lucy, spelled with a C-Y, replaced Lucy spelled with an S-I, she softened a bit. This slightly less malevolent form of Lucy has links to an even more malevolent and greatly misunderstood Christian figure whose name is the male equivalent of Lucy. Lucifer is mentioned only once in the Bible, and it has nothing to do with the devil. In chapter 14 of the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, the king of Babylon is referred to in Hebrew as the morning star. This is a reference to the planet Venus, the morning star, which can be seen early in the morning as a bright star near the horizon. Because the king was a tyrant and boastful, he was foretold to be cast to the ground from heaven. This meant his reign would soon be ending, and he would fall from favor like the morning star falling from the sky. In Latin translations of the Bible, the Hebrew expression for morning star was translated into the Latin Lucifer, the light bearer. Lucifer is what the ancient Romans called the planet Venus. He was the divine personification of the planet that rose in the early morning, a god who was the son of the dawn, Aurora. The connection between Lucifer and the devil derived from an interpretation of a verse from the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. Quote, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. The Christian scholar Origen of Alexandria linked the shining morning star from Isaiah with a line from the Gospel about Satan falling from heaven. Origen reasoned that because this figure, the morning star, fell from heaven, he couldn't be a mortal man. He must be divine if he originated from heaven. God certainly wouldn't fall from heaven, so it must have been the devil, Satan mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. It's this line of reasoning that grew into our modern interpretation that Lucifer was an angel in heaven who, when he staged an unsuccessful coup, fell like lightning from heaven to found hell and became the devil, Satan. 
John Calvin and other Protestant reformers strongly disagreed with this reading. Several modern editions of the Christian Bible no longer use the word Lucifer in Isaiah 14 and substitute the name with the alternative Morning Star, which many believe is a closer translation to the original Hebrew. Nevertheless, the idea that Lucifer is Satan persists, and St. Lucy, the female version of Lucifer, as well as the name of an enchantress spelled L-U-S-S-I, was tarred with this brush to be a slightly evil character. St. Lucy has retained her malevolent side outside Scandinavia. In Austria, it's said that boys can see lights called the Luzi-Shine, or Lucy Shining, during midnight on the eve of Lucy's feast. The lights foretell the future depending on the shapes they make and the colors manifested. In northeastern Italy, Lucy is a Santa Claus-like figure who brings gifts to children on the eve of her feast day. Naughty children receive coal, just like in many Santa Claus traditions. And like Santa Claus, Lucy arrives at each house with companions, not reindeer or elves, but a donkey and a drunken man named Gostaldo. Before going to bed that night, children leave coffee for Lucy, a carrot for the donkey, and wine for Gostaldo. And it's very important that every child be fast asleep when Lucy and her companions arrive. If she finds you awake, she might blind you with ashes. Modern St. Lucy feast day celebrations in Scandinavia are all about light. One girl in every township and village is elected to be Lucy, or Lucia as she's called in Scandinavia. The elected Lucia wears a white dress with a red sash. The white of the dress represents purity, the red sash, martyrdom. She also wears a wreath with lit candles on her head like a crown and leads a procession holding another lit candle. The candle she holds in her hand represents the fire that Pascasius lit when he tried unsuccessfully to kill Lucy. Other girls dressed in white follow behind. They all sing the Italian folk song Santa Lucia with lyrics in the native language of each country, altered slightly from region to region, but never deviating too far from the theme of light overcoming darkness, hearkening to pre-Christian rituals that ensured the end of the longest night of the year and the return of the light. In Sweden, a national Lucy is also elected from regional Lucys in a televised event. The winner leads a parade in the capital, Stockholm, visiting nursing homes, shopping centers, churches, and other public places to hand out pepparkarkor, or ginger cookies. Boys also participate with songs of their own, walking the parade dressed as gingerbread men, Christmas elves, or star boys, heavenly beings in white robes with conical hats decorated with stars. They look like wizards from a Saturday morning cartoon. In keeping with the changing times, the Swedish celebrations today see boys elected as the Santa Lucia of their school, and both boys and girls taking on roles previously strictly assigned to one gender or another. The procession with a wreath of candles has its origins in the St. Lucy legend first recorded in the medieval era. While Lucy and her mother were distributing their estate to the poor, they also brought food and clothing to Christians hiding in the catacombs. Lucy needed light to see in the dark tunnels, but she needed the use of both her hands to carry as much supplies as possible. So she fixed candles to a chaplet or wreath she wore on her head, like an ancient Roman version of a miner's helmet. Another legend from the Middle Ages tells of ships with a cargo of wheat arriving in Sicily on St. Lucy's feast day to save the populace from starvation. 
St. Lucy herself was at the head of a boat on Lake Vanern in southern Sweden to deliver sacks of wheat to the starving people. Modern Italian celebrations involve gift-giving and eating occhi di Santa Lucia, which means the eyes of St. Lucy, eye-shaped cookies. Occhi di Santa Lucia is also the name of a good luck charm that comes from sea snails. They're common on beaches everywhere and look like flat snails. They're the discarded operculum or doors of sea snails, used by the animals to shut the entrance to their shells for safety. These charms are prized around the world. They're called the Eye of Shiva in India, the Eye of Naxos in Greece, mermaid coins in South Africa. Check out the St. Podcast website and social media pages to see both the Occhi di Santa Lucia cookie and the Occhi di Santa Lucia amulets. St. Lucy is the way of the light. She's a divine bearer of light, both a figurative enlightenment of the mind and faith, as well as a literal light for sailors at sea and for those of us hunkering down for winter. St. Lucy is one of several legendary figures who contributed to modern Christmas customs, a festival of light during the darkest time of the year that promises brighter times and spring just around the corner. Thank you so much for listening to the last episode in St. Podcast Martyr Season, St. Lucy, the Spirit of Christmas. And thank you everyone for supporting our debut and the first 10 episodes. We've really appreciated all the feedback and comments. Please keep them coming. The email address is feedback at saintpodcast.com. That's saint spelled out. S-A-I-N-T. We love hearing from you. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and rate us. It'll help other people discover Saint Podcast. The readings in this episode were provided by my good friend Nicola Good from Watford, England, who works in children's publishing. The musical interludes were composed and performed by Stephen Vesecki, a maths teacher and very talented musician who lives in LA. A link to Stephen Vesecki's SoundCloud page is on the website, as are images of the people, artworks, and objects covered. You can also find St. Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. St. Podcast will be going on a short hiatus as we prepare for season two. 10 episodes about saints who experienced divine visions and ecstatic visitations. Some of them were exorcists who fought evil spirits, demons, and the devil himself. Others suffered from stigmata, the bloody wounds of Christ's crucifixion that miraculously appeared on their bodies. Join us in early 2022 for St. Podcast's second series, Mystics. Thank you.